At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? There. Matthew 24. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, it's so great to be able to come and sing. Sing to you. Sing among the congregation. Father, I pray that we would be a congregation that sings, that sings a new song, that sings from the heart, that sings not only here corporately as we gather together, but also in our own times with you day by day as we read scripture, as we pray to you. Let a song also come from uh, the depths of our souls, uh, engaging our hearts and minds. Father, the passages in Scripture where you have us are heavy. Help us not be unaffected by what we read and learn. Let their weight have the intended effect. We need your Holy Spirit to enable us to respond with brokenness, with grief, with joy, with urgency. Be merciful to us, O God. And visit us today for those who are at home, everyone who is here, God. Come, be our teacher. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Matthew 24, verse 29. Jesus says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The word of the Lord. We continue our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today. We're looking at Matthew 24 and 25 uh, and letting Jesus teach us on, on really how we're to live today in light of the future. And so let's review what we've learned so far. In Matthew 24, we're two days, just two days from Jesus' crucifixion. This is his last discourse where he's preparing his disciples for some significant shifts that are coming, changes that they could not have anticipated, nor did they have a category for. And so he begins by toning down their enthusiasm about the temple and its buildings. He says to them, you see all these buildings, do you not? I tell you, not one stone will be left on another that will 
will not be thrown down. Of course, this statement is perplexing to the disciples. So they come to him in private and ask him, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? As we've said before, in their minds, the destruction of Jerusalem, of the temple in Jerusalem was such a such an earth-shattering event that for them, it must coincide with also his return and the end of the age. Jesus quickly corrects their misunderstanding in the rest of this chapter. And so what does he emphasize in Matthew 24? He uses the image of birth pains, a woman's labor during childbirth, which is an apt image because a woman has pain and then intense pain at certain times, then transition, and then there's a baby, a new life. Well, Jesus explains in verses 4 through 28 uh, that this, in the church age, there will be distress, general distress, but at times that distress will become even more acute, such as in the fall of Jerusalem, but where history is marching, where all of this is going is to the triumph of God's purposes in his son. Now, the general distress that characterizes the church age includes imposters who will come and lead others astray, wars, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes. For within the church, the hardship out there in the world will lead uh, to affliction for the disciples and hatred and even death. Many will leave the faith and betray one another. He says, the love of many will grow cold. But at the same time, the gospel will go forth and the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus' followers can expect simultaneously distress, but also the preaching of the gospel to advance. You see, sometimes we think that we need the best conditions for the gospel to advance, but I don't know what those conditions would be. There's never the best conditions for the gospel. God sent his son at just the right time. Yes, the Roman roads made it easier to travel so that the gospel could be spread. Yes, Roman law brought a degree of order so that discourse could be had. But as far as morality, the Roman world and the Gentiles were depraved when it came to their view on sexuality, on marriage, on human dignity, on government structures and power. As far as their worldview, they were polytheistic, meaning they believed in many gods. And don't think that it was easier to convert from believe in many gods to believe in one God than it is to go from believe in no God, which is what some today believe, to believe in Jesus. Both take faith on our part and an outpouring of grace on God's part. So it doesn't matter where in the world or when in the world you preach Christ, the world will never be ready for him. We will always find two things at work, obstacle and reception. Obstacle to the gospel and reception of the gospel. But we will more naturally focus on what? The obstacles. My friends are confused about gender. Our government is passing immoral laws. My friends are successful and don't think they need a savior. Our schools and universities deny creation. We seem to think that the culture needs to move in a Christian direction for it to receive the Christian gospel. But do you see how nonsensical that is? That would be like me getting an illness and saying, until I get healthier, I won't be 
healthier. Jesus says it's the sick who need a doctor. No culture ever moves in a Christian direction because it's only the church that receives Jesus as her savior. It's only the church that has the spirit of God empowering her and making us holy. Now, there are There can be parts of the culture that more or less align with parts of biblical or Christian morality. Yes, that does happen, but that's a far cry from saying that a culture is Christian. I mean, take for example, Christians in the early 20th century. Do you think they were stronger because the American culture was more in line in some parts of its morality with what the Bible says? No, it might have been more comfortable to be a Christian then, But comfortable circumstances often have an adverse effect on true discipleship. So no, we cannot let distress, the distress of the age that Jesus speaks of, silence our witness or determine our faith. We trust Christ's word that along with distress, which we're always to expect, there will be those who gladly receive the gospel such as yourselves. And this is always by a work of God himself. Now, another thing that Jesus emphasizes in this chapter, specifically in verses 15 through 21, was that Israel is judged. Israel is judged. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 was a particularly difficult and violent time of judgment. It was not the end of the age as the disciples thought, but it certainly was the end of Judaism as they knew it. The devastation was gruesome. The wrath of God over Israel because of their rejection of his son was on full display through Roman oppression. So now that Jesus has spoken about what to expect generally in the entire church age from his ascension to his return, now that he's spoken specifically about the destruction of Jerusalem, he now speaks about the second part of their question his return, and the end of the age. Look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now let me just say that this whole chapter has had a number of interpretations by faithful Christians throughout history and even within Woodside. And that's okay. When it comes to some secondary matters of doctrine, um, faithful Christians have fallen on different places in interpretation. Uh, for a number of different reasons. Now, there are certain things that we cannot fall on different pages on, like who Jesus is. We have to be very clear on that. You know, you, you can believe certain things about Jesus and, and not, no longer be within orthodox, historic Christianity. But in some of these things that relate to the end, there have been different, uh, different understandings of this and other passages, and that's okay. Now, some interpreters think that the verses we just read still are talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. I don't take that view. As I've 
said, I think that verses 4 through 28 describe the entire church age, with verses 15 through 21 specifically referring to the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. So that when we get to verse 29, and it says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, I take those days to mean the entire church age he just described. In other words, when history comes to an end, here's the kinds of things that you're going to see. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall, fall from the heavens. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. That's, that language is apocalyptic language, which means it's a, it's a vivid cosmic way of describing the upheaval that comes when God shakes the foundations of the very natural order. Now, apocalyptic language does not always have to be taken literally. Often it's not. For example, in Isaiah 13, he uses this same kind of language to describe the, um, the destruction of Babylon or the fall of Babylon by the judgment of God. And so here we're talking about uh, judgment on Israel. So it could be such that uh, the sun, the moon, all of these things are not to be taken literally necessarily. However, I think that because of the context of this cataclysmic event that's being described, namely the return of Christ, that the, the language fits well for it to have this kind of fulfillment. In other words, if the present heavens and earth will pass away, which Jesus is about to say in just a couple of verses, then the sun and the moon doing some wacky things is not that big a deal, is it? Now, then we come here to this magnificent verse 30. And please don't miss it. He says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus is enthroned and coming. Revelation 1 verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. The first time Jesus appeared on earth. Next time he will appear in heaven. The first time only a few welcomed him. Next time all the peoples of the earth will mourn. First, first time he came lowly and humbly. Next time he comes with power and great glory. When Paul speaks to the people of Thessalonica about the return of Christ, he says to them, encourage one another with these words. Do we encourage one another with the awesome return of Christ? Now, why will the tribes of the earth mourn at his return? Because they don't know him. Because his coming spells their destruction. And we can't read about this reality and be unaffected. Not too long ago, my family watched the movie Schindler's List um, again. Uh, it's a movie about World War II uh, in which this German businessman, Oskar Schindler, um, has a change of heart and begins to save uh, as many Jews as he can. When he realizes what Hitler and what Nazi Germany is, uh, is doing, he, um, he, he schemes, he comes up with these schemes to basically buy Jews from Hitler to send them to his factories so that they will not be taken to the camps. 
It's an awesome, it's a powerful movie. But then at the end, some of the about 1,100 Jews that he saved are there with him, thanking him for saving their lives. And they give him this ring that says in Hebrew from the Talmud, he who saves one life saves the world entire. And at that moment, Schindler just loses it. He just starts thinking about all that he has wasted in his life. And he just starts going, I've wasted so much. I've wasted so much money. You have no idea. I've wasted so much money. I could have done so much more. And he goes and he, he looks at his car and he says, this car could have been 10 people. And he takes this gold pin that he has on his suit and he says, this pin could have been two, maybe one, one person. As he starts thinking about what's taking place, the massive destruction of life, he comes undone. And I know that I don't ache enough over the reality that the return of our king means destruction for the peoples of the world who don't know him, who didn't follow him, who didn't surrender to him. All people, the living and the dead, will stand in judgment it says, all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see him. Can you hear their cries? Can you picture their undoing? Can you comprehend the scale, the scale of the horror, of the wailing, of the, of the loss? When Paul the apostle thought about his own people, the Israelites' refusal to receive the Messiah, he agonized. He agonized. In Romans 9, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, what Paul is saying is, if I could make it so that I lose my own salvation so that my people who refuse to turn to Jesus would, I would do it. Of course, he can't do that. And so he did the best thing he could. He labored night and day in hunger, in danger. He persevered through betrayal and torture and prison so that his own people, the Jews, but also the Gentiles, us, could come to know Christ and surrender to him. We must mourn, mourn. It must affect us. It ought to bother us. It ought to bend us on our knees so that we beg our God to please open their eyes, to open our mouths, to stop their delusion, to stop our wasteful and greedy ways and give us a lifestyle that's worthy of our calling and election. We need to mourn for all those who have no claim on the blood of Christ, those who will stand on their own unrighteousness and will have no acquittal. We can read over this and be unaffected.
But we also need to encourage one another with these words of our deliverance and election. Look at verse 31. He says, and he, meaning the son of man himself, will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Is it possible? Is it possible for us to live lives that are sorrowful yet always rejoicing? Can we do this? Yes, I think so. I think it's the only way to live when we grasp our salvation on the one hand and the world's refusal to kiss God's king on the other. It's how Paul lived. This is how Paul lived in this paradox of the overlap of the ages where the present evil age is being taken over by the new age, the age that's to come, that's already begun for the followers of Jesus. It's how Paul lived. Paul says we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying, but behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. In this overlap of the ages, we ought to encourage one another with these words. When Christ comes in all his power and with great glory, listen, if you've taken refuge in Christ, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. This has to just make you want to pause and stop and conquer sin and give yourself fully to the, to the cause of Christ because you will have nothing to fear. He says he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, that is from the four corners of the world. Our salvation will be complete. Notice that he says the angels belong to Jesus. He says he will send out his angels. Thousands upon thousands that belong to him. Notice that the elect belong to Jesus. He says the angels will gather his elect. They are Christ. He's purchased them by his blood. They come to gather them. A great sifting will take place at the end of the age. The gospel is global because this sifting will be global. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, we read the parable of the weeds. Now in Matthew 13, Jesus tells a number of parables about the kingdom. And in one of them, he says, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man who went out and sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, an enemy came in and sowed weeds among the wheat. So that both of them began to grow together. Yes, the grain grew, but also the weeds. Now, when the servants saw this, they came to the master and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed? How come that there are weeds? And the master says, an enemy has done this. So the servants say, well, do you want us to go and pull them up? And he says, no. Lest when you're pulling up the weeds, you pull up the grain as well when it's not ready. Let it go. Let them both grow at the same time 
wait until harvest and at harvest I will tell the reapers gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn a great sifting is coming the disciples want to have an explanation of this parable and so they come in private and they ask Jesus and in Matthew 13 37 he answered the one who sows here's his explanation the one who sows the good seed is the son of man Jesus himself the field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom the weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Listen, church, sorrowful yet always rejoicing we are sorrowful because we know we live in no la la land if you've cast your lot with christ then you know that there is an enemy the devil and there are sons of the evil one and at the end of the age there will be a great sifting christ will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and they will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there is great weeping and gnashing of teeth jesus uses that phrase again and again for the torment for the suffering that's coming to those who do not have him sorrowful but we also rejoice because he says the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Have you cast your lot with Christ? That's what you have coming for you. You're shining. You're going to be shining in the kingdom of your father. A time is coming. A day is coming. When the prayer that Jesus put on our lips your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven will be the totality of reality. The totality of reality. There will all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, all evil, or sin, all death will be cast out of God's renewed, remade kingdom. No more imposters. No more pornography. No more children sold into the sex trade. No more racially motivated crimes. No more money wasted and stored where moth and rust destroy. This is what's coming. This is the great sifting. At most, we're 40, 50 years from it. Longer for some of you, shorter for others. But remember, whichever comes first, the end of the age or the end of your life, it's just a few years. It's just a few years. Your life is a mist. So what now? What now? Rely. Rely on Jesus' unchanging word.
Rely on his unchanging word. Look at verse 32. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Rely on Jesus' unchanging word. Jesus does something here, which is, which is an apocalyptic kind of discourse. He does Something very similar to what John does in Revelation. In Revelation, John, John does this, this thing throughout the letter where he takes us all the way to the end and then he rewinds. And then he takes us back to the end and then he rewinds. But each retelling is not the same. It changes. There's a new angle, a nuance that he brings out. And the effect of that rhetorical technique is very powerful. Well, Jesus does something similar here. As he's describing the age, the entire age, and answering the disciples' questions, he takes us to the end, but then he rewinds. And so, here, in verse 14, he takes us to the end. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. But then in verse 15, he rewinds. And from 15 to 21, he tells us more specifically about the destruction of Jerusalem. But then 22 through 26, he goes back to the entire age and the different Christ, false Christ that will come and those who will follow them. But then in verse 27, he takes us again to the end of the age. For as the lightning comes from the east, and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then in verses 29 through 31, which are the ones that we have focused on today, he zooms in on the end. Cosmic upheaval. The Christ comes in power. The peoples of the earth wail when they see him. The angels come and gather the elect. And he says then to them in verses 32 through 35, he gives a warning. He says, when you see the fig tree and its branch is tender, you know, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. What are all these things? Because when you see all these things, what are all these things? The things he's been describing. Not his actual coming that we just looked at in 29 through 31, because that would not be his being near. That would be his arrival. Rather, it's the things he's been describing in 4 through 28, which characterize the entire church age. All the things he's been describing would happen within the lifetime of the generation that he's speaking to. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That doesn't mean that they would cease to happen after that generation. It's just that they would happen within that generation and then the pattern continues down to our day. There will be other times of great distress. But church, our culture has no category, no concept of the return of Christ we're just rearranging furniture, as many believe, in a sinking ship. We're just delaying the inevitable, the demise of the earth, whether through global warming or nuclear warfare or global pandemics and famines. But as Christians, we know that that's not the end. 
Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, my words will not pass away. Do you believe him? Do you believe that after the birth pains of the age, a new world will emerge? More glorious than anything that we could ever imagine. Do you believe him? And so I leave you with Jesus' words from Matthew 19. He says, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you, O oh Lord, for giving it to us, for preserving it for us. Father, I pray that we would be able to adopt this posture of being sorrowful yet always rejoicing. It is possible to do. The life of Jesus exemplified it. The life of Paul exemplified it and so many of your people throughout history. We want to be able to do it, God. We want to be sorrowful because we know that the return of your king will be the demise of all those who make no claim on his blood. All those who stand on their own unrighteousness and will have no acquittal for their sins. They're condemned already. Father, I pray that that weighty thought would matter to us and transform us. That we would beg you to open their eyes, to open our mouths, God. Stop their delusion. Stop our wasteful, greedy, self-centered ways. Give us a lifestyle that conforms with our calling, with our election with what we truly believe. Father, I pray for our family members, our friends who do not know you. Lord, would you send us to them? And let us plead with them, God. Plead. With tears. We won't regret it in eternity may feel embarrassed or ashamed or awkward for a bit, but it's just a bit. Many will turn. Many will turn to you, God. Father, let us not focus on the obstacles it's why Christ gave us this very discourse to tell us there will always be obstacles. So what? The gospel will go forth. I will gather my people from all 
four corners of the world. I will gather them. Let us have great faith in you, Lord. Great faith in you. Not on the facades that people put up. Not on the ideologies that are so contrary to your word. It's always been this way from the beginning of Cain. Let us rather, Lord, focus on you and the reception of the gospel by those who are yours. They're in every generation. They're in every country. They're in every place. And we do believe that because you have us as a strong witness to yourself, to your glory right here in Royal Oak, that you have many who belong to you right here. Give us faith. Give us courage. So that their wailing will turn to joy before it's too late. Kiss the sun. Jesus, we bow before you. We love you. And we rejoice. We rejoice with great joy that at your coming, we have nothing, nothing to fear because we have hidden, we have taken refuge in the rock. We claim the blood of Christ as our righteousness and nothing else. You are King of Kings, Lord of Lords. your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.